Dr. Art Laffer has been called the father of supply-side economics. He was a member of President Reagan's Economic Policy Advisory Board, and is perhaps best known for developing the Laffer Curve, an illustration of the idea that there is some tax rate between 0% and 100% that will result in maximum tax revenue for the government. He served as economic advisor to Donald Trump during his 2016 campaign and was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2019. Today, he will discuss how the economic climate has been affected by COVID-19. Let's listen in. Thank you very much, Ted. It's a pleasure being with all of you. By the way, you should mention that Tennessee is the lowest tax state in the nation. You know, we have no income tax whatsoever. We have the eighth lowest property tax. In fact, if you look at the total tax burden, we're really, really low. And I love low taxes, to be honest with you. Uh, Work is so much more fun with lower taxes. That's my view of the world. Uh, Let let me, if I can, I want to touch on a few things with you on the economics and on what's happening with COVID-19, and then just throw it open for questions, if that's okay, Ted. Uh, I'd love to do it that way. The uh, uh, COVID-19 caught us all by surprise, obviously. Uh, I focus on the death rate. That's the one that really uh, motivates me in my thinking about COVID-19. If you'll remember, I I think it was early April, uh, the death rate was about 2,500 a day. That number has steadily come down to where now it's in the 500, even lower than 500 a day. So it is coming way, way down. Um, and that that's all very, very good news. Other very good news is, and um, this I can tell you, I was chairman of the board of Centennial Hospital here in Nashville. Um, that's the flagship for HCA, for those of you who don't know. And, and uh, we were very worried about ICU beds and all of that. Even though the US started the process with the largest number of ICU beds, uh, per 100,000 population of any major country in the world. Uh, there was lots of fear that the system would be overrun. That has not only not happened, it appears to be that the ICU beds, we have plenty of flexibility in there. It's also apparent, at least it appears to be, that the uh, virus, coronavirus, is uh, getting somewhat weaker, as is normally the case with a virus. Uh, they don't do very well when they kill their hosts, so they, they evolve very quickly. Uh, And lastly, you know, a lot of the medical stuff that's been occurring in a very rapid case has really redounded very much to the benefit of curing people with um, COVID-19. They know how to do it. For example, the intubation uh, process has been greatly reduced. Uh, They're using now ECMO rather than intubation, which has been very beneficial and life-saving. So the system, everything has evolved very well. I, you know, given that we have COVID-19, I could not be more excited about the progress we've made. And from watching Maria Bartiromo and with Mike Milken, it also looks very much like there's some really promising vaccines and promising better treatments for coming. So you wanted me to talk about start off with the COVID-19 and what is damage it's done. It's done a lot of damage to the U.S. economy, uh, but that economy, in my view, has been rebounding back very nicely. Uh, you know, I would, I'm always a huge believer in the power of incentives and that people's incentives, if correctly placed, uh, will behave really, really well and really quickly. Uh, you know, if you drop a $20 bill on the floor, it's rarely there for more than a second or two before someone picks it up. And what we saw a month ago was a two and a half million increase in employment. And then this last month, we saw 4.8 million, which is right in line with the thoughts that I was having. Now, let, let, me, let, let me do on a couple of things where I think they're problems. And by the way, just so all of you know, 
Uh, I love your group, No Labels. I think it's completely wonderful that you work that way. <clears throat> Jared Polis, as some of you may know, was my intern. I'm on all of his family boards and I visit him in Colorado, Democrat. Uh, he's going to probably be the first governor to eliminate the income tax in any state. So he's a clear thinking, solid guy, uh, Democrat, Republican. It really doesn't matter. Good economics is good economics. Uh, also, some of you may know that I was Jerry Brown's economist when he ran for president. That 13 percent low rate broad based flat tax was my baby. So I've worked with Democrats and Republicans, uh, the Kennedys as well. I mean, I just like low taxes. I like economic growth and I like prosperity. And I don't really care what label it comes with other than those labels. Uh, but let me, <clears throat> let me, if I can, go through two economic principles that I think are really critical uh, for understanding what's going on in the economy and how policy responses should be and how they haven't been. The first one is to understand that government spending is taxation, pure and simple. Uh, government doesn't create resources. Government redistributes resources. For all the money they give to one person, they have to take from someone else. It's a double entry accounting system. You have to follow your T accounts. And this may not be obvious or intuitive to everyone. Uh, there are a lot of economists who believe that government spending is stimulative. Uh, it's not. Uh, and let me, if I can, try to try to explain it to you quickly. Uh, good economics, if it's good economics, is scalable. Uh, it should apply to the U.S. with 330 million people or to China with 1.3 billion or Luxembourg with four people. Good economics is really should be scalable and easy. Uh, following good economics in a 330 million person world is very difficult because you do can't follow the T accounts. You've got credit default swaps. You've got Chinese capital flows. You've got multipliers, velocities. But when you realize it's scalable, when you look at a small scale, you can see it very easily. Um, imagine a two-person world, farmer A and farmer B, and that's it. No one else, just those two farmers, A and B. There's nothing else in the world except those two. If farmer B gets unemployment benefits, who do you think pays for them? And obviously the answer is farmer A. It is very clear that government spending is taxation. Uh, and that you've got to understand. That doesn't mean you don't do government spending. You do do government spending, but you've got to reflect and understand there's a cost involved with it. Uh, the other one I want to just touch on with you for a second, and again, it's just pure math. It's not ideological. It's not left or right, Republican or anything else, is redistribution. Redistribution always reduces income. And let me just show you the theorem here intuitively. Redistribution occurs when you take from someone who has a little bit more and you give to someone who has a little bit less. Now, by taking from someone who has a little bit more, you reduce that person's incentives for producing and that person will produce a little bit less. By giving to someone who has a little bit less, you provide that person with an alternative source of income other than working and that person too will produce a little bit less. The theorem mathematically is very straightforward. Whenever you redistribute income, you always reduce total income. And again, that doesn't mean you don't do it. It means you have to understand and reflect on the costs involved when you do do redistribution. Now, the, the lemma from this theorem is also equally as intuitive. The more you redistribute, the greater will be the loss in income. Uh, and the limit function of this theorem is equally as 
as, as obvious is if you were able to completely redistribute income so that everyone actually came out exactly the same, there would be no income whatsoever. Let me show that to you. If you're going to have exactly equal results for everyone, if you're going to be the Saez, Piketty, uh, Zuckman people of the MIT group, what you have to do is you have to tax everyone who makes above the average income 100% of the excess, and you have to subsidize everyone below the average income up to the average income. Only in that way can you guarantee that everyone will come out exactly the same. Now, if you actually did that, if you actually taxed everyone above the average income 100% of the excess, and you actually subsidize everyone below the average income up to the average income, I will stipulate today, counselor, everyone will come out the exact same at zero income, period. Now, with these as your basis, when you look at something like the economic problem that was done by the coronavirus, all right, and you look at the things, we had the CARES Act, which was about $3 trillion uh, worth of spending. Most of it, almost all of it was redistribution. Uh, there was a very good portion of that, which was on medical, but it was by no means the lion's share of the spending. Uh, I disagreed very much with the CARES Act on the redistribution. There may have been some of that that you really wanted to do, but the PPP and some of these others and the unemployment benefits, 600 bucks per week, I thought were way over the top, way beyond the pale and should not have been done. When we look at the second uh, round of stimulus that's supposedly coming out of Washington, there are a couple of things I've focused on with the president and with the team. The first one is the payroll tax waiver. And let me explain to you why I, I really support the payroll tax waiver, why I think everyone, I mean, uh, Democrats and Republicans that should support it, is that the payroll tax waiver, if you want more employment, what you wanna do is tax employment less. What the payroll tax waiver does is eliminates the payroll tax, let's say through December 31st. That would increase the wages received by workers by 7.65%, which is the employee contribution to the payroll tax. This is both Medicare and Social Security, uh, and therefore making it more attractive for employees to work. The second thing it does is it reduces the employer contribution, reduces it, eliminates it, which is also 7.65% of the payroll tax of all employers, which makes it much more attractive uh, to hire workers, to retain workers, and to expand the use of workers because it's much less costly. So it increases the returns to workers and reduces the cost to employers, which is a, a huge incentive effect. Now, by making it terminal on December 31st, what it means is that we need that production now. So if you have a time limit to when that can happen, you will pay up people, businesses accelerating their income and employment to the present, which will jumpstart the economy and get it going, which is exactly what I think we should do to do that. One of the other nice things about the payroll tax waiver is the payroll tax is paid by every single employee in America, no matter what company they work for. And the payroll tax is paid by every single employee and employer, which means that there are no picking winners and losers on the part of the government, which is, in my view, one of the biggest problems is corruption in government of trying to pick winners and losers is not what government should be doing. It hits every employee and every employer equally across. It is the most broad-based one you can do. The, the last one I want to hit on with you is I did a piece with John Childs probably about six or seven years ago, which we looked at the cost 
of government getting a dollar's worth of money so they can spend it. And what we looked at now in this one was the income tax, both corporate and personal. But we looked at it, we looked at all the lawyers, the accountants, the deferred income specialists that all the taxpayers have to pay, all the auditing departments, accounting departments, all of these things in companies, which they have to use there. We then use the costs of audits. These are all of the out-of-cost, out-of-pocket costs for collecting a dollar's worth of taxes that can then be spent. The number we came up with, roughly speaking, is between 30 and 35 cents out-of-pocket expenditures for every dollar of tax dollar collected that can then be used for spending, which means that a tax reduction dollar is about 35% more efficient than is a government spending dollar. So therefore, I'd much prefer to see a waiver of a payroll tax than I would a spending program because each dollar of static revenue loss of a payroll tax is about 35% more efficient than is a dollar of spending. So that's where I am on the payroll tax. I also want to see transparency in medical prices. I can go through that with you. I think you're all aware of the, uh, of the executive order that the president did on this that I think is just wonderful. We're trying to get that into legislation form for the stimulus package there. Uh, I was very involved in that process of getting that. There are a few other things you can do, 100% expensing of capital purchases, and Larry Kudlow has one on capital gains. But these are the ones to really get the economy going. And with that, I'll just throw it open, Ted. I don't know if this is what you guys wanted or if this is what you guys do, but there you have it. Uh, first question comes from Andrew Tisch. Uh, thank you, Ted. Thank you, Arthur. So I'm... Uh... I'm a bit of a deficit hawk, and uh, our accumulated deficit before COVID was what, about $23 trillion? Something like that. That'd be about $29 trillion, give or take. Uh, uh, oh, if we're lucky. If we're, if we're lucky. Uh, we can't keep uh, adding uh, trillion dollar deficits year after year, especially when the government is spending $4 trillion and we're taking in $3 trillion and borrowing uh, borrowing the other trillion. How are we going to get it back down? Uh, and uh, first of all, do you care if we never get it back down? Or if we do, how are we going to get it back down? Let, let me say, I, I do agree with you that deficits and debt are problems, but I don't think they're nearly the size of the problem that you're describing. Uh, when I look at debt and when I look at deficits, most people look at it relative to GDP. Uh, you've got the uh, Probably GDP today is 21 trillion, something like 22 trillion. Our debt was about 80% of GDP prior to this last year. Uh, today, it'll be probably 115% of GDP. You, you never should compare, in my line, a compare a stock with a flow or flow with a stock. Uh, you want to compare stocks with stocks and flows with flows. The way I like to look at the US def, uh, national debt is to look at it relative to U.S. wealth. If you look at it compared to U.S. wealth, and here we have the Federal Reserve Board numbers on this, while the number is much larger than I would like it to be, uh, Andrew, uh, it's not scary at all. Uh, U.S. debt to U.S. wealth is still well within the range of being worked on and being kept. I would prefer to see it lower rather than higher. The other way you can look at the U.S. debt is look at U.S. debt service and compare it to US GDP, that's a flow with a flow. If you look at that, uh, US debt service relative to GDP today is way low, much lower than it was in 81 or 82. Uh, and so therefore, 
My view is debt is a problem, uh, but it's much less of a problem than you're than you're referring to. And I, I don't think it's an urgent problem in the sense that we have to solve it this week or this year or even this probably in the next five years. We, the, only, the only difference is in 81, 82, the interest rate was what about uh, 11, 12 percent. And today the interest rate is two, three percent. So yeah, well, that, uh, that's very true. And also the interest rate in 1982 or 81 was also had a huge capital re pay down of the national debt because interest for inflation was reducing the real value of the national debt as well. Right. And if you want to think of it alternatively, inflation was expanding the uh, U.S. net worth very rapidly, if you want to think in nominal terms. Uh, but right about now, I think really the right thing to do is look at the ratio of those. And I think that ratio would tell us that, you know, we're not on the edge of a cliff ready to fall over. it. I, I just don't think it's panic stuff although I'd really much rather see it much lower, but I think you, you can't solve the national debt issue uh, without having economic growth. So as far as policies go, I think the policies uh, on the CARES Act were wrong. I don't think they should have been done. I think we should be running a much better budget and spending a lot less than we are, uh, but I'm not panicked about going over a cliff. Yeah, I, I would panic a lot less if I knew that my elected officials were worried about it. Uh, I would too. Thank you. But I'm 80 years old and panic doesn't do me any good anymore. Heck. I'm not too far <laughs> behind. The next, need, squeeze through the next couple of years with a brown paper bag, a couple of quaaludes, and I'll make it. So our next question, uh, in addition to uh, Representative Smucker, who is a uh, member of the Problem Solvers, we have a, another uh, member of, of that group, uh, Representative Dan Lipinski from uh, Illinois, who has a question. Hello, Dan. Hey, Art, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. I had a quick question. Uh, are you still supportive of the uh, carbon fee, the fully refunded carbon fee? And you see it happening. You're talking about a carbon tax? Yes. Yeah, I, I totally support a carbon tax as long as it is 100% offset by an income tax or a payroll tax reduction. You know, if you want to solve global warming, what you want to do is raise the relative price of carbon so people use less of it, but you don't want to destroy the economy. And Al Gore and I did a paper and a lot of work together on this. And Al Gore has always been perfectly wonderful on the carbon tax. Uh, he's always said that he wants the carbon tax, but completely offset by a payroll tax rate reduction or an income tax rate. The problem I have with the standalone carbon tax is it would do enormous damage to the economy uh, if it were done by itself. But a tax on carbon, in my view, does far less damage to the economy than does a progressive income tax or than does a payroll tax. Therefore, as long as we have a carbon tax offset by a payroll tax cut or an income tax cut, I would be a, a more than 100% supportive. I have tried like mad to get Democrats uh, to do that without anything else, just a straight one-for-one -one trade off And I haven't been able to get it done. I mean, you know, to be honest with you, I, I got White House to be very close to it. He's a fellow Yaley, and, you know, but he, he just wouldn't go all the way. He just won't. He's got to put in political stuff in here of redistribution or something else in there. You know, a payroll tax straight swap would be good for the economy 
and it would be good for the environment. I just don't see any downside. Well, I've been there for uh, more than 10 years now and put in pushing this from a democratic side and it's always trying to get, uh, uh, there's, a, there's been some pushback now on, uh, on my side, but the bigger issue is getting, uh, getting Republicans on board. So I, I appreciate oh, I, there were a lot of Republicans. There were a lot of Republicans I know who are on board and in the House have been on board. But as long as it's a clean bill, you know, can't have all the other stuff in it. You know, and, and White House wanted to put five things on redistribution in and people who would be facing higher grocery prices because of more gas. But, you know, you just can't get into all the other stuff. Just do a clean one and let's get the environment and the economy solved together. This economy does not need uh, external pollution. It just doesn't need it. It'd be really great to do it without pollution, and you can do that with a swap. Okay. Thank that, you. I hope okay. that makes sense to you. Yeah. Arthur, the uh, next question is from Jackie Norton, and following Jackie will be Murray Levin. Let, let's let's go to Murray, Murray Levin, and maybe Jackie will come back. Hello, Murray. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you very much for sharing your insights. I would like to... Uh, pose my question in this format. Assume that I'm a very successful businessman and make a great deal of money and am taxed at, we'll make up a number 80%, uh, 20%, and I keep 80%. And now there's a income tax bill and the following year I'm taxed at a rate of 25%. What do you base your statement that I therefore would make less money, would have less incentive. Are you making a uh, psychological statement? Can you, in other words, can you offer some proof for what I think is more or less just a straight averment? Thank you. Let me just do the theory with you first, okay, is that economics is all about incentives and people like doing things they find attractive and they just like doing things they find unattractive. One of the things that makes an activity less attractive is taxation. Uh, so therefore, on a principal level, taxation, higher taxation will make that activity of working, maybe not for you personally, but for a large class of you, it really surely will. What you want to look at is not the tax rate itself, all right? What you want to look at is your, uh, is your retention rate. People don't work to pay taxes. People work to get what they can after tax. And let me give you the example of John F. Kennedy so I can use a much bigger example than just the 20, 25%, which is small. When Kennedy came into office, the highest marginal income tax rate was 91%. The lowest rate was 20%. All right, now he cut that rate from 91% to 70%, and he cut the lowest rate from 20% to 14%. By cutting the rate from 91 uh, to 70%, that's a 23% cut in the tax rate. By cutting the 20% to 14%, that's a 30% cut in the lowest tax rate. You, you follow me? When you get the recording, you can go through it more carefully. You know, the real reason here, the real incentive is the incentive. Think of a guy in the 91% tax rate. He earns a buck, he has to pay 91 cents in taxes. His incentive for earning that dollar is nine cents on the dollar. That's his incentive. After Kennedy's tax cut, he went from 91 cents to 70 cents, which means now, for earning a buck, he gets to keep 30 cents. He goes from nine cents in the dollar to 30 cents. That's a 270% increase in incentives. 
for a 20, I'm excuse me, a 230% increase in incentives for a 23% cut in rates. That's a 10 to 1 beneficial cost ratio. The guy in the lowest bracket goes from 20 to 14 percent. Uh, that means that before the tax cut, every dollar he made, he kept 80 cents. After the tax cut, every dollar he made, he kept 86 cents. That's an 87. That's a 7 percent increase in incentives, 30 percent cut in rates for that guy. That's a benefit cost ratio of one to four. What you really want to do is match it so that the incentive effect dominates the static effect. And in your case, the going from 20 to 25, you know, that will reduce your incentives to work. Now we have tons of econometric and literature. The academic literature is absolutely clear on this across the board. Is that incentives really matter and they matter a lot. I could give you anecdotes all day long, but the academic literature, and if any of you'd like it, I've got a compilation of about 450 academic articles with annotated bibliographies if you want them. But all, all the people, Romer, Romer, all of them find that there are very powerful increases in employment effects on a macro side for tax rate reductions and going to a flatter tax. Going to zero tax? No. But the more flat your tax is, the more growth you're going to have, the more output, more prosperity. I hope that Give you a quick one. If any of you want articles on this, I'll be glad to share it with you. Just email me. One thing I've always liked about Dr. Laffer, he's very brief in his uh, in his responses, but that's not true, Ted. Thank you. Uh, You're making mock of me now. Representative Smucker does have a uh, a question. That's uh, what happened to Jackie? We'll get her late. We'll get her after a bit. Let's, let's see Representative Smucker right now. Thank you, Ted. And Dr. Laffer, really, really appreciate your uh, insight and comments here. Uh, I was very interested in your uh, comments in regards uh, to the debt, uh, serving on the budget committee, uh, hearing from the head of CBO who talks about a sovereign debt crisis that will occur in the next 10, 20 years if we don't change the trajectory. I've, and what, uh, what uh, was interesting to me in your comments was I've always felt like measuring against GDP is like taking your liabilities on the balance sheet and measuring it against your income statement. You sort of described that. And what I was trying to determine, and I don't know if anybody's taking a look at this, is would it make sense to match liabilities against federal assets, which are pretty significant when you look at land and all of that? Your measure was a little different. You're talking total wealth across the country, and I don't know exactly what that number is, honestly, but um, I've just, A, wondered what your thought is on that. Shouldn't there be a better report uh, in regards to a real balance sheet on the, on the deficit? How would that change our views about the debt? Uh, and then secondly, if you're not too concerned now, you're concerned, but you don't think it's an immediate crisis, you know, at what level uh, should we really be worried if you're measuring against total uh, uh, you know, wealth in the country, at what level should we be uh, concerned? Yeah, I, I like your question a lot, and it's right. I was the first chief economist at the OMB when it was formed in 1970. I was George Schultz's right-hand person, and I looked at the balance sheet of the U.S., which is the right way to do it, which is what you're talking about here. And the balance sheet of the U.S. Uh, is uh, the balance sheet of the U.S. is one way of doing it. I also looked at the wealth. The wealth numbers are published by the Federal Reserve Board. They publish them every, I think, every three months. Uh, on that, we have a very good series of U.S. wealth going back. Uh, we do not have a good series of U.S. Uh, government-owned assets. 
because frankly, there are a lot of things in there that we don't know about. Uh, we used to have something called the Saltonstall Report, which you looked at an actuarial balance sheet of the US, which took uh, unfunded liabilities into account and all of that. Uh, you know, we don't have the Saltonstall Report any longer. The government decided not to publish it or do it anymore, which is a crying shame. And that would give you a lot of fodder if you had that report. But what you want to do is you say very clearly, you want to compare flows with flows. What is the uh, what is the cost of servicing the debt? And what is the revenues? If you want to use tax revenues, that's fine. If you want to use a GDP, that's fine too. I use both. Uh, or if you want to use balance sheet, balance sheet, that would be fine too. The balance stock versus stock, which was the total U.S. debt compared to uh, uh, total U.S. wealth. And that's the right way to go. The Rogoff issue, uh, this time it's different in all of those. I think they're just plain wrong. We are not in a crisis. Again, I would prefer to be less debt. But remember, debt is not a problem. It's the spread that is the problem. Let, let me give you an example here. I'm going to let you borrow all you want, risk-free, at 1%. And I'm going to let you lend all you want, risk-free, at 12%. How much should you borrow? Everything you can get your hands on. Now, reverse those numbers. I'm going to let you borrow all you want at 12% and let you lend all you want at 1%. How much should you borrow? Nothing. Borrowing is neither a good nor a bad. It's a tool. What is important here is the spread. Now, when we came into office, and God loved America, the clouds parted, the sun shone forth on the earth, and we had green fields, the animals, they multiplied, and the children danced in the streets. When we came into the U.S. with, with the real president, Ronald Reagan, we found that the four stooges, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, and Carter, had run our, by the way, the largest assemblage of bipartisan ignorance ever put on planet Earth. They had run the U.S. into the ground. What we did is we did just like a uh, just like an, a venture fund, just like an equity fund. We took a company that had been run into the ground. We dug in the trash heap. We found this little imprimatur. We polished it. We put it on the side of our building. It said USA America. We then sat there and brought it in. We cut taxes dramatically. We sold the products. We borrowed lots to build it up and just prayed to God that the asset value would appreciate. And it did. We grew the U.S., and it was an amazing change. U.S. debt to U.S. wealth shrank dramatically when the real president was in office and we grew like mad. It did the same thing under Bill Clinton, by the way. Clinton was one of the greatest presidents I've ever thought. Not, not a great person, by the way. I'd never met, let my daughter intern in that White House. But he was a great president. I voted for Clinton twice and publicly did all. You know, the problem is what you want to do is make sure your spread is right. You want to borrow cheap and lend dear. And then you can do it. You don't want to borrow all this money at high interest rates and use it to pay people not to work. What you want to do is borrow at low rates and pay people to work and get the economy growing. It's all about the spread. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, with W and Obama and with the Four Stooges, uh, the spread was the wrong direction. Uh, with Reagan, with Clinton, and I think with Trump, the spread is in the right direction. Uh, I think we're really borrowing uh, cheap, and we're letting this economy start to grow. The tax bill and all that was just phenomenal with the executive order and healthcare. I mean, I think we're going in very pro-growth policies, except when we come to the CARES Act and what probably will happen with the next stimulus. Thank you. All right, you you maybe go too long on that one, but debt is not your problem. The spread is the problem. 
Okay, next we're going to try Jackie Norton. I think she's uh, she's is there, and then we'll get Raj at Laura will be next after her. Go ahead, Jackie. Well, thank you all. Let me first acknowledge that um, the reason you've never heard of Jackie Norton is because she's not really a member of No Labels, and I'm just honored to be on this call on behalf of Don Buttinger. Uh, but I'm also honored to be on this call because Dr. Laffer. I met you way back in the early 90s when I was the deputy chief of staff to Governor Fife Symington. And as you will recall, you helped him and his administration start a tax cutting commitment that continues to this day with the help of Monday's guest, Grover Norquist. Uh, and our current governor says we will continue cutting the income tax where it's as close to zero as possible. So you are a legend in Arizona. Uh, but the question on behalf of Don Buttinger is, can the curve, can one get on what he calls the left side of the curve? And apparently he's had this conversation with you before, so I don't think it will catch you off guard. No, I mean, what we did with Fife, Fife was one of my dearest friends, and we were going to eliminate the income tax in Arizona over eight years. We did it on separate bills so we wouldn't be caught with a big deficit and then have to reverse it and do all of that. As all of you know, or some of you may know, is after five years, Fife was indicted. Uh, he was convicted. He was thrown out of office. We had almost re reversed the Malford, uh, Babbitt, and Meekham uh, administration, and we had everything rolling. We were blessed by one huge, huge factor. We were blessed by Pete Wilson being in California, causing solar systems of economics to leave California. They landed in Arizona, which was nice. Uh, but no, I States are way beyond the curve in, in most states are. And that's why I moved to Nashville uh, is that, you know, they're, they're taxing themselves, losing business. Um, you won't believe this, but once upon a time, uh, Detroit was the Paris of, Paris of North America. My mom and dad used to take me in the 40s uh, by train up to Detroit, Michigan for vacation. I mean, the train station there was the Taj Mahal. In 1950, Detroit had a population of 1.85 million. Today, it's less than 600,000. And that was all done by Romney, Mitt Romney's dad. Uh, George Romney put in the income tax there. They put in a corporate tax in the city. And well, you've seen the spiral. These spirals are impossible to reverse once they start. Uh, and you can see it in St. Louis. You can see it in Cleveland, my hometown. You can see it all over the nation. And that's what we hope does not happen to Arizona, uh, is that Arizona has done pretty well uh, but boy, was it bad before Fife got in. Thank you. Okay, next we have uh, Raj Atlora, followed by Stamen Ogilvy. Raj? Yep, thank you. Hey, Dr. Laffer, it's been a long time. Yes. How are you? I'm doing great. Good to see your face. And uh, I really enjoyed your book on the wealth of states. So thank, thank you for sending that. It was a fantastic read and, you know, touches on what you just touched on. The question I have is, is redistribution of wealth always a net negative on growth? And the question really is around education and healthcare. If you, you know, can um, really improve the educational outcome of just pick the example, one child, right? That child becomes more productive, generates more wealth for the, for the economy overall over a long period of time. And so you do that overall across the you know, United States, education investment, which is you know, funded by redistribution of wealth in general, like, net positive for the economy or healthcare. You can you can address both. Let, let, let me let me put government into perspective from my standpoint. You know, when I look at the three things that matter, 
how you collect your taxes, how do you spend the proceeds, and how much you collect and spend in total. Now, when you look at taxes, and I'm going to be a little bit flip here, but forgive me, we don't have hours. Uh, all taxes are bad, but some are worse than others. What you want to do is collect your tax revenues in the least damaging fashion for the economy. One. Number two, you want to spend the proceeds in the most beneficial fashion for the economy. When the damage done by the last dollar of taxes collected is a less than the benefit done by the last dollar spent, stop already. Any government larger than that is too large and should be shrunk. Any government smaller than that is too small and should be expanded. Now, putting your question into this context, if I may, there are lots of things the government should be doing and does really well, and you've mentioned a bunch of them. All these things with major externalities, education, healthcare, highways, defense, you could go on, are perfectly natural areas for government to be involved in and should spend resources doing, and they should balance the costs and the benefits to the society. And there's some that aren't economic. And let me just sum, none of us wants to see someone starving or dying to, uh, dying on the streets. I mean, that's when you just, even it doesn't help GDP. For God's sakes, we're humans. Let's bring them back in and help them. But what you've got to do, and if I may say, make sure you're clear-eyed. Make sure you don't exaggerate the benefits and ignore the costs. A good person who does really truthful help is clear-eyed and warm-hearted simultaneously. But you can't be a warm-hearted, generous person without being clear-eyed simultaneously. It, it does no one any good to lie about the costs and do something that's going to actually create the very problems you want. Now, when I look at some of the problems we have in society, some of them are being actually created by government spending. We're creating the very poverty class. I wrote Enterprise Zones back in 1974 uh, in the south side of Chicago, uh, because I saw a problem, what was happening in the inner cities. My neighborhood was, well, the story is that when my family and I moved to Southern California, my old neighborhood was no longer integrated. Uh, I was living in that neighborhood all of my life there. Uh, I wrote enterprise zones where if you want to win in the inner cities, what you want to do is have tax-free zones where you can attract businesses coming in. I, first thing was no payroll tax for the employer or employee in the enterprise zone as long as the person's principal residence was the enterprise zone, as long as the uh, business's facility was the enterprise zone. No income tax, up to $50,000 a year as well. Same criteria. Thoroughview building codes, regulations, restrictions, and requirements to make sure that they're not anti-economic growth. They're not just union put in things to create monopoly. And lastly, what I had in my first proposal was you get rid of the teenage minimum wage. These kids, they aren't worth 15 bucks an hour. I don't know if you've been in the inner cities, but they're not. And they won't get that first job at 15 bucks an hour. After being unemployed for a year or two, they become unemployable. After being unemployable for a couple of years, they become hostile. Then you have to spend a fortune protecting yourself from them. My proposal was get rid of the teenage minimum wage, which I used to call the Black Teenage Unemployment Act, and get rid of that to let these kids come in. The way I was trained to earn above the minimum wage, hell, I had to go through prep school, I had to go through Yale, I had to go through MBA program and a PhD before I finally was able to earn something above the minimum wage. These kids need on the job training.
And they're never going to get that on the job training unless they first get a first job and learn it. I did a whole program in San Diego. You remember this, Ted, with Rosie Greer. He did the on hands, you know, clean your fingers, wash your hands. Don't say those words anymore. Pull up your pants, get the chain. And I did the macro stuff and Rosie and I did, I did the macro and he did the micro stuff. It, you know, we have a really important thing for the role in government to bring all the things you talk about. And I couldn't agree with you more. And that's how to make it work and get our government to really do a good job. That was fantastic. Would you mind if I just did a quick follow-up? Sure. So we're moving from the last hundred years of America industrializing, becoming the world's most powerful country. Now we're going through the next century of us digitizing, which we're seeing over the last 20 years has had an incredible impact on, on you know, our economy, the growth, the change in the, the, you know, the S&P 500, the Dow 20, whatever it may be. You know, how do we, is there an incentive mechanism for sort of retraining our you know, industrial workforce of the last you know, 20, 20 years to a, dig, you know, to a digital workforce? How do you think about tax policy or policy in general for that? Well, the first place is you need to be able to have a job in the new field to make it worthwhile to learn it. Uh, and that's really important. So the prudent primorum, the first of all first, is economic growth. You know, once you get the growth, then what you want to do is make sure that it's not uh, it's not anti-output, uh, uh, the policies you have in place, of which I have always gone for a low-rate, broad-based flat tax. As you know, I did Jerry Brown's flat tax. We got rid of all federal taxes, all of them. And in there said we had two flat tax. We got rid of the income tax, the payroll tax, both employer and employee, corporate tax, capital gains tax, death tax. We got rid of all excise tax. We got rid of all tariffs. We got rid of all, except for sin taxes. And the reason Jerry and I kept sin taxes is because their function is not so much to raise revenues as it is to change behavior. I mean, you know, uh, you know, I used to say the, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, we Americans don't like, uh, you know, we don't like fellow Americans drunk shooting each other and smoking all at the same time. Uh, but then we got rid of all federal taxes and put in two flat rate taxes, one on business net sales, or if you're a Democrat, forgive me if you're a Republican, I say net sales, if you're a Democrat value added tax. And then we had another one on personal unadjusted gross income. For Jerry, I did it. We calculated total federal taxes, divided it by this base. We're going to have this common rate from the first dollar to the last dollar, no deductions, exemptions, or exclusions. And what we did, we found out it came 11.8% or 12% was the flat tax rate. That's about government-sped taxes are about 20% of GDP, and that comes out to 12%. He wanted a little bit extra revenue, so we ran on a 13% Flat tax. If you'll, any of you remember Jerry, this is 1992 against that blue-eyed son of a bee from Arkansas, Mr. Bill Clinton. There, and we went after him wholeheartedly on economics. Uh, we had just won. Uh, we started off in the race, eighth in the polls in the race. All right, Jerry said, "Thank God they're not nine in the in the running, or otherwise we'd be ninth." And he was right. And he ran on this thing. We picked up in the polls dramatically. We had just won Connecticut. We had just won Oregon. We were coming into New York and California. We had that guy in the crosshairs. I mean, we we're going to win. When Jerry Brown announced three weeks before the New York primary that he was going to have Jesse Jackson as his running mate. I mean, Jerry did not want to become president, but that's the way to do it. Get the hell out of the business. Get a low rate, broad based flat tax. Don't let the government pick winners and losers unless there's a really big reason for it. It's not because there's some lobbyists in some congressional district that 
hold the chain. No, no exceptions. Low rate, broad base, flat tax, and just let the system take off by itself, creating prosperity and also uh, creates the incentives for people to switch from industrial to digital. Uh, government spending, if you're going to make redistribution, should be where you do it, uh, not in taxes. You should never mix government spending programs with tax programs. It makes no sense whatsoever. I hope hey. that addresses your issue. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Good, good to see you. Thank you, know, you. It's really, it's really serious stuff we're talking about, and I, I hate to get really excited with you, and especially at my age. But you know, this is not a joke. The economy is not a funny. You know, there are real people who are suffering enormously today because of huge mistakes and government policies. You know, we're never going to be able to correct all the injustices of Earth. But what you want to do is what Teddy Roosevelt said, you know, we can't guarantee everyone gets dealt a winning hand. And we can't guarantee that if you are dealt a good hand, that you're going to play it correctly and be a winner. We can't guarantee that. All we want to make sure is that, you know, is, is that we, 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 we guarantee there's no tomfoolery in the dealing of the hands, that the hands are dealt fairly and correctly, and the government doesn't tilt against the rich man or against the poor man, in favor of the poor man, against the rich man. Have a low rate, broad base, flat tax, and let the economy go. They'll create so much prosperity for you that it, it'll, be, it'll be phenomenal. That's where the dream is of government. It's not to run things. It's to create an environment where we can live our lives and play our hands as best we can. Okay, let's go to Stamen Ogilvie and then uh, Joel Myers. Stamen. Thank you, uh, Professor. Let us assume that we remain in the purgatory uh, short of that nirvana of a flat tax in the future. Assume that. And speak for a moment, if you will, on the wisdom or folly of a significantly differentiated capital gains rate from income rate. The way capital gains should be treated, if I may be really serious with you here. Uh, capital gains, the, the increase in unrealized capital gains, or if it's realized, should be counted as income. And the and the reduction in unrealized capital gains should be a deduction from income. Income for a person should be defined as all the money you spent plus all the money you gave away plus your increase in wealth. This is the Henry Simon definition of income that I think every economist will agree is what it is. What is the control over resources you've had over a fixed period of time. And that's your income, what you spend, what you give away, and the increase in your wealth. And all of that should be taxed at one rate period. That would include increases in unrealized capital gains should be taxed as income, and reductions in unrealized capital gains should be deducted from income. And it should be taxed only once, there should be not a separate tax for capital gains upon death. You should pay it when the capital gains occurs. And that's the only time when you actually realize it is irrelevant. Uh, it's when the unrealized gain occurs that you should be taxed on it and never again. Who are the, who are the legion of accountants who determine what wealth is? 
each time a picture is Well, it's, it's pretty easy. Uh, there are lots of examples you can give me where it's really not easy. But let me take a guy like Warren Buffet, who I did, uh, I did the paper in the Wall Street Journal on his, and I think it was his 2000 tax return that he released. Warren Buffet paid $7 million in taxes. Uh, his income, when he said it, he told, said his income tax rate was 19.4% of his taxable income, which gave him a $35 million income, and which then when you realize that he deducted all of his uh, excess charitable gifts, which was 30% of uh, adjusted gross income, he had about a 43%, $43 million uh, adjusted, uh, adjusted gross income in that year. You can calculate these numbers exactly. And any of you want this paper, I'll be glad to send it to you. I then went and looked at what he did. And uh, if you look at what he did, uh, uh, he gave away, I, I think, uh, $2 million, a little less than $2 million to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that year. He gave away a couple of, uh, excuse me, $2 billion. He gave away a couple billion dollars to his two sons' foundation, his daughter's foundation, and his wife's foundations plus maybe others, but it was about $4 billion he gave away. I then went and looked at Forbes 500, the, the value of his own holdings of Berkshire Hathaway, and I think his holdings of Berkshire Hathaway that year went from $36 billion to $46 billion. It was a $10 billion. His income that year, correctly designed, was about $13 billion, and he paid $7 million in taxes, all legal, all perfectly legal. I'm not I'm not in any way, shape, or form accusing him of anything. It's just our tax code sucks. If we'd have had a low-rate, broad-based flat tax, his wealth would have increased. He'd have paid probably uh, something about one and a half, two billion dollars in taxes, and bam, uh, he'd have been better off. We'd have been better off, and the world would have been running a lot better. That's the way you want to go it with capital gains. That's the way you want to do it. You want to tax increases and in unrealized capital increases as income decreases in unrealized capital gains as negative income, and then you tax it once at the income tax rate, the flat rate, and never again. Whenever you want to sell that asset, fine, you don't have to pay taxes on it uh, as long as you paid it on the increase in unrealized capital gains. You follow me? You don't want to have the locked-in effect on capital gains because that destroys production. I remember Russell Long telling me that the author, there's this man here in Louisiana down in Baton Rouge. He's got he owns 75 acres downtown. He bought it for $1.50 in 1375. It's now worth $4 billion, but he can't sell it because he would have to do the capital gains tax. And so it was it ran really inefficiently. That's not what you want. You want capital gains to be flexible and liquid, just like all other assets. Sorry, I went along with you on that. Thank you very much. Okay, next, uh, Joel Myers. Arthur, I always am and enjoy very much your uh, your comments. I wish you could get all the schools to teach economics as simply and straightforward as uh, you describe it. Uh, when you look at the balance sheet, the, the risk of looking at the balance sheet of the country is these are not in, income producing assets like they are corporations. And the only way to realize any of that uh, value is to sell them. Who's going to buy uh, the, the huge amount we're talking about? So they're really not very liquid. But uh, my main question follows up on uh, what Andrew Trish said. So the debt <clears throat> and, and everything you said assumes interest rates are going to remain low for an extended period of time, but they're extraordinarily low. Typically, through history, they've been more like 4%. We saw them spike up well into the teens in the early 80s. 
So even if I go back to five to 10%, right now at 1% on 30 trillion, you're looking at 300 billion a year. But if they go to 10%, that's 3 trillion that you have to pay in interest, which equals all the money the government's collecting now. You've got a serious problem. So you're counting on very low interest rates, historically extraordinarily low rates, continuing forever, which I don't think is realistic. Let, let me, if I can, any of you want my paper on the debt, national debt deficits and debt and that, I'd be glad to send it. Ted, if you get their names, I'll be glad to send them the paper I did before COVID hit uh, there. But let me just say interest rates reflect two things. They reflect the service of the debt, they do, but they also reflect a, a payback of the debt. If you have 2% inflation and you have a trillion dollars in debt, that's $20 billion uh, of debt being reduced every year in real terms because of the inflation. So most of the interest rates that you're talking about, especially if you're talking about it when we came into office, when God still loved America and, and, and Ronnie won the election, we took over on January 20th, 1981. I mean, the prime interest rate in this wonderful country of yours was 21 and a half percent. That was not an interest rate that you would consider as being the proper interest rate on the national debt. Uh, that was a huge inflation premium uh, that was reducing the real value of the national debt dramatically. So. All I beg you is what you want to really look at is the interest rate that would exist if there were no general inflation. That's the one you want to look at uh, and for calculating these numbers. Um, if you're going to replace the debt that you reduced because of inflation, I don't see anything that would be uneconomic about that. Let, let me, if I can, though, when you talk about earning income on an asset, there's a little place in Southern California, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called Camp Pendleton. Think about Camp Pendleton for a minute. You get to San Onofre, you know, the uh, the uh, the big uh, nuclear reactors there in San Onofre, if you go down to then, um, I forget what the northernmost city is there, and, and just before uh, you get into regular San Diego area. Oceanside. Uh, huh? Oceanside. Oceanside, thank you. From Camp Pendleton, from, from San Onofre to Camp, it's 20 miles long. Uh, you've got about 15 miles from the five to the 15, but you've got some things in there. You've got about 300 square miles of Southern California beachfront property. Uh, if you were to give it to developers to develop and sell over the next 10 years, I mean, that could fetch you a pretty penny. If you looked at, let's say, a Fort Knox, a Fort Knox in 1933, Roosevelt put in the Bank Holiday Act and and took all the private gold and some of the monetary silver and all the gold certificates, went over and buried it all in Fort Knox. Have any of you, by the way, ever been to Fort Knox and seen all that gold? No one has. Uh, but imagine if we just took that now, which was at that time $20.67 an ounce. What's the price of, a, of an ounce of gold today? $1,800, $1,700 an ounce uh, if you did that. You know, we could do a huge amount. I could, if you gave me a sharp pencil, and a pad of paper, I could, I could sell off, I could reduce the national debt in a long weekend. If I had a big magnifying glass, I could reduce the national debt in a weekend by these types of measures by probably $7 trillion. Just bang. Just by well, well, all, all that gold at today's prices is only $500 billion, only half a trillion, by the way. I, I don't know what the numbers were. I got a little bit larger than that. But, uh, you know, when it was done... Uh, in uh, $20.67 an ounce, as it was back then, it was a little bit over a 10% wealth tax on US GDP in 1933. It's what it came out to. I don't remember 
how many ounces of gold and stuff, but it, it, it's a lot of money. And there are a lot of others there too. But I don't want to argue about the dollar cents. Camp Pendleton's really expensive. Will you agree with me on that? You know, let's imagine we did one and had a fun one, which I've, I have act, uh, I've suggested for years and years. We do a, a, a federal, state, and local bank hol- uh, tax holiday, uh, 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 tax amnesty, excuse me. The IRS estimates that something like 10% of all incomes are not reported. Uh, the taxes go uncollected. If you take that number on two trillion, you've got about uh, two trillion a year. You've had it for the last twenty years. If you did a bank holiday, a, a tax amnesty program, you could probably collect I don't know a trillion and a half, two trillion, and ongoing collections going for. There are lots and lots of ways of doing efficiently well done tax programs that can collect a lot of revenues, reduce the debt dramatically and also would not destroy economic growth. And these things just should be done across the board. You know, I've been recommending these for years and, and, you know, getting a good blank slate. Uh, You know, I took enterprise zones to all my Democratic friends and and they didn't go for it. They didn't care. I had to find two (laughs) famous white guys to do the enterprise zones. I found one guy who wished he were black, Jack Kemp, And I got the other guy who'd never met a black who was Ronald Reagan. They were the only ones that would allow me to do my enterprise zones. We got something done with it. You know, we have all of these revolutionary policies that can be put in there that would really change the face of this country and not cause a depression. I mean, honestly, people, and the best one of all, and forgive me for this, is everyone responds to incentives. Everyone. I took a pillowcase of $20 bills up to Harvard University, the sociology department in Cambridge, Massachusetts on a day right after Bernie Sanders gave a rally. It was the capital of Fabian socialism. I stood on a chair, there was a slight wind blowing and I took that pillowcase of $20 bills and flapped it up in the air and all these $20 bills went floating over the crowd and within 15 seconds, they were all gone. Socialists love money. The question is the problem we have today is that government spends other people's money. They don't have any incentive. They don't have any skin in the game. Would you invest in a company where the management and the board of directors have no stock options and own no stock? Of course you wouldn't. The reason we have a problem with government is they have no incentives to do a good job. My view is really simple. What I would do is if you have 3% economic growth, Congress and the uh, Congress and the president get their pay. If you have 4% growth, you double their pay. If you get 5% growth, you triple their pay. It's great. They get 2% growth, they don't get any pay. 1% growth, they owe us their pay. At 0% growth, they owe us double their pay. You know, if you put an incentive structure in like we do in every business, you're going to get great behavior. What the problem is, we need to put government on commission. I have no problem with the government officials making lots and lots of money as long as I do too. It's when they make a lot of money and I don't, that that's the problem. And the trouble is we're incentivizing government to make money in all the wrong ways. I have never heard uh, of, a, uh, of a politician dying poor. And that is the case here. We need to re-incentivize the government of this country to run as if that their livelihood depended on it which it should. And that you see in the 
essence of supply side economics is merit pay for politicians, I think is the right answer. And then we wouldn't have to have these discussions. We wouldn't about no label, worried about no labels. If these guys make a lot of money, it's because they're doing a great job. There's nothing wrong with that. Great way to uh, to end this part of it. And I'm going to now turn it over to one of the co-founders, Bill Galston, for a uh, for some closing thoughts. Good to see you again, Dr. Laffer. Uh, the, the last time was at our debate sponsored by Paul Gigot in the Wall Street Journal in New York a few years ago. Well. Uh, you were on my side most of that time, by the way. <laughs> well, uh, now is not the time to resume the areas where we disagreed, <laughs> since we're just about out of time. Time, But I would point out that there is a fatal flaw in your Camp Pendleton plan. And I speak with authority here because I did my specialist training at Camp Pendleton during the Vietnam era, and the Marines would be arrayed against you. You wouldn't have a chance. <laughs> so you can forget about sending off, selling off Camp Pendleton. That's right. <laughs> Uh, although it is worth a heck of a lot of money, I'll grant I'll grant you that. Look, uh, you know your enthusiasm is infectious. You know we we hope at the age of eighty uh, we'll all have as much energy and as much hope for the future as as you do. Uh, and we agree with you that an essential part of hope for the future is a government that functions and does the right things. Uh, we are working it here at No Labels you know, to come up with a formula where the two political parties will not only agree more frequently than they do, uh, but also agree on the right things more frequently than we do. And uh, we hope you'll we hope you'll be willing to uh, come back from time to time. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, we have no incentives to offer you, to the best of my knowledge. So you'll have We'll have to rely on your generosity in order to come back. Uh, I don't know whether that implies any sort of tweaks to your theory of human motivation, but uh, let's not let's not go there. At any rate, uh, Ted, uh, you know, thanks, you know, thanks for recommending Dr. Laffer as a guest. It's been a pleasure, and uh, we are adjourned. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Dr. Laffer discusses two economic principles he thinks are necessary in order to understand the current economic situation. First, government spending requires taxation and redistribution of resources. Second, he believes that redistribution always reduces income and production, and therefore, even though some taxation is required, especially to help those suffering hardship, government should endeavor to keep taxes as low as they can. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. 